do we exist? Were we created with a purpose or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. saw the title and you clicked this episode, uh, which you obviously did because you're here, it is not clickbait. I'm going to demonstrate to you beyond a reasonable doubt that God does not exist. But before we do that, uh, I hope you're having a wonderful start to your Thanksgiving week. Uh, I'm thinking about doing another thing kind of like we did last year. I'll link some of the episodes in the description from last year. But we did a thing where we went through some different Christmas themes, um, some different things people have said about Christmas. For example, that it's all pagan and they took it from pagan um, practices and rituals and so on and so forth. Actually, that's not true. But uh, we talked a little bit about that. We did genealogies. We did the Magi, who the Magi were. So I'm thinking about doing something like that again. Um, Maybe something along the lines of of disproving popular Christmas myths uh, and and highlighting really important things in regard to Christmas that I think get missed pretty often. So I'm thinking about doing that after Thanksgiving. I, I really enjoyed that last year and I hope you did too. From what I know, a lot of people did. But in general, I'm really looking forward to Christmas, uh, especially because our son is now old enough to pretty much know what's going on and be able to look forward to things. So he's almost two. So that's super exciting. I can't wait for that. Uh, but I'd be even more excited if you would hit follow, whether you're an Apple or Spotify or Google, um, just hit follow and make sure you hit the little notify button. So you're notified of new episodes. For the time being, we're releasing episodes Monday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern time, but we also uh, release extra content sometimes throughout the week. So make sure you hit notify and that way you're reminded of new episodes. And you won't miss anything from this uh, series we have coming up for Christmas season. So, super pumped for that. Uh, with that being said, let's get started here. I'll start by proving that God doesn't exist, and then we'll go from there. So, not only am I confident that God does not exist, but I also want to convince you that God does not exist. So, uh, let's start by looking at the term exist. Uh, the the idea of existence, it has its roots in Latin. You may know this just from a simple Google search, but you'll see that the root words in Latin for the word exist or existence are literally to stand out or outstanding. Now, going back to before Plato, there is this idea that imagine on a on a whiteboard, imagine the word being written and that word being is circled, okay? So before Plato, there was this idea that pure being, it doesn't depend on anything. It is self-sufficient. It doesn't need anything. Pure being doesn't need anything. It's eternal. It's self-sufficient. So imagine that word being circled on a board. Now, outside of that circle, imagine the word becoming. So you have being, and then outside of being, you have becoming. Now, if something is becoming, what does that mean? That means it isn't yet. That means that by definition, it is changing. It is constantly changing. Think about yourself. You're becoming, okay? But you're constantly changing. Every day you're changing. Like 10 years ago, every atom in your body is different than it is now. You are constantly changing. So a creature that exists, this, this is where you get the standout or outstanding idea. A creature that exists stands outside of being because they're becoming. God is being. God is essence. To say that God exists 
Now, I know that we don't use it technically, okay? A lot of the time, we it's like if you say, oh, that's really cool. You don't mean it's cold. I understand we use existence a certain, in a certain way, but technically speaking, it's insulting to say God exists because you're calling God a creature. God is beyond existence, okay? He is essence. He is being. So, when you are asked the question, can you prove that God exists? And this is going to be our question, so remember that. Can you prove that God exists? Start by agreeing with the atheist or the non-believer by saying, no, I agree with you 100%. God doesn't exist. That's where I would start. And then I would go through, um, and we're going to go through pretty much each word in that sentence to show you how to respond to a question like this. And there are many ways. Okay, if you go on YouTube right now and find some Christian apologists and look up... um, how do I know God exists? Or can you prove God exists? You're going to find page after page after page of very good responses. Um, so there are tons of ways to respond to this. But what I'm going to do is not necessarily just give you a like a packaged response to say, but I want to explain where I'm coming from when I would answer this question and why you should keep these very same things in mind. So to start off, God is beyond existence. He is essence. He is being. He is not outside of being in the sense that he's changing, that he's becoming. He is being. So that's why God says, I am, to Moses and and then in John 8. He says, I am. He always is. In the theological term to describe this in regard to God's attributes um, is immutability. God is immutable. So if you think of the word mutation, a mutation is something that changes, right? A a creature with mutations, um, a mutation is a change. So God doesn't change. He is immutable, unchangeable. He doesn't change at all. I hope that's clear enough now. With that in mind, when somebody asks you the question, can you prove God exists, what would you say to them? I bet that your mind would start racing I bet you would think, I'm trying to remember everything I've ever learned about God. How can I How can I put it all together and prove that he exists? I bet you're like probably going to go into panic mode and not know what to say. Okay, because on the surface, that sounds like a very, very difficult question. That's a, that's a pretty daunting task, right, to prove that God exists. But the first thing you should do is take a step back and evaluate the question, evaluate the situation. Okay, now first of all, of course, it it depends who this is coming from. Is it coming from um, an atheist or is it coming from an agnostic? Those are two very different camps. Is it coming from a believer who's wondering, hey, I, you know, I think I've been Christian for a while, but how do I really know God exists? Can you can we prove God exists? There's a lot of different places this could be coming from. So keep that in mind first, because that's going to have a lot to do with the tone of the discussion and how you'll respond to this question. Um, but with that in mind, you can then start to evaluate the actual question. Okay, what word in here do I think should be changed? Well, the word prove. What you need to do is you need to get off of the word prove and arrive at the word evidence. And we're going to spend some time on the word evidence in just a minute here. But you need to start by getting off of the term prove. Get that word out of your mind. Get that word out of the discussion. Okay, you have to be kind of tactful here. But get that word out of the discussion because that word needs to go. Remember, when you're talking to somebody about the existence of God, 
you've probably heard two million times that you can't prove or disprove God. You know, that's usually people are, well, I can't prove God. You can't disprove God. That's, that's, that's true in a lot of ways. Okay. But that's one of the reasons you have to get off of this word proof, because when you're talking about prove, first of all, you need to find out what the person means by proof. Like, you know, what would be sufficient? What do you mean by, can I prove God exists? Like I can't pick them up and put them in front of you. If that's what you're asking, even in court, they don't do that. And we're going to get to that too. Um, but you have to get off of that idea of proof because when you're talking about doing science, for example, regardless of the type of science, you can only do science on created things. Uh, the universe is created, the earth and everything in it is created, atoms are created, people are created, biology, anything you study in biology is created. These are things that are created things. God's not a created thing. Remember, God doesn't exist. So God can't be studied in that sense inside of existence. Rather, what God does is he reveals evidence to us. Um, Put that on hold for just a second. So get off of that term exist. And, you know, if, if let's say it's a person you know well, you could even say, well, can you disprove that God exists? They're probably going to say, no, I can't. I can't disprove God. They might come up with some reasons as to why they think he doesn't, but they can't actually sufficiently disprove that God doesn't exist. Um, And if you're using the definition of prove, as in, I want to prove God exists in the same way that I want to prove two plus two equals four, well, then you can't prove God exists either. And what's going to happen is you're just going to have a mess of a discussion. You're not going to know what to say. So the first thing is to get off of that word prove and move over to the idea of evidence. What this could look like is you could, I mean, you could start with the God doesn't exist thing. You don't have to do that, but I like to do it. Uh, Otherwise, you can start by getting off of prove and saying, well, you know, I, it depends really what you mean by prove, because usually when we talk about uh, any kind of scientific method, we're studying created things. But what I would say is that based on the evidence we have available, God is the best explanation for everything. God is the best explanation. And you can think of arguments. I would think of arguments, by the way. I'll show you a few of them briefly. But before we start to break down a few arguments for God's existence, I wanted to talk about the idea of evidence for a minute. There are a number of apologists and there's even apologetics approaches um, that don't necessarily want to use evidence to demonstrate God's existence. They don't want to put God in the category of saying, well, I have faith in God because he is the best explanation based on what he's revealed to me. Um, And so there are people who don't like this idea of evidence. I actually think oftentimes they end up contradicting themselves. Um, I mean, I've seen debates between Christians and atheists where they'll use this this presuppositional method and they'll be going on and on and on. And then somebody will ask them a question like, well, how come you don't believe in this miracle and this miracle and this miracle? How come you only believe in um, certain Christian miracles? And at that point, all you can say is, well, I believe in certain Christian miracles based on the evidence. <laughs> because if you go any other direction, you're just going to end up with circular circular reasoning. You're going to say, I believe these ones because they're in the Bible. And then somebody's going to say, well, why do you believe the Bible? Well, I believe the Bible because the Bible says the Bible's true. Um, and so I'm, I'm not a fan of the, the presuppositional approach for that reason. Um, I've also noticed that it's oftentimes a cop-out. There have been times um, where I've had a discussion with people online or in person and there, it's kind of like a fallback, sort of like, well, 
how do you even know what's good? It's like, look, I'm a Christian. I'm already, I already agree with you on that. Can we just have an actual discussion? So that's not everybody. But for that reason, I'm not a huge fan of the presuppositional method, though there are elements of it that I certainly appreciate. And it's been used in a lot of great debates. But all that to say, we should care about evidence. And I'll show you why once again. Um, if we look at the idea of evidence and the term evidence, and we look at the etymology of evidence, um, this this comes from the idea of observing, so to observe, to see, for something to be obvious to the mind or the eye. So this is the etymology of evidence, to observe or to see. So when you think about Jesus doing signs, what Jesus is actually doing when he's doing signs, yes, he's compassionate. Yes, he cares about people. Yes, it's not a coincidence that God chose uh, compassionate miracles to reveal who this, the, the Messiah is. Okay, but what Jesus is doing is he's doing these evidence to fulfill things from the Old Testament, predictions, prophecies from the Old Testament. And so what he's doing is he's providing evidence that he is the Messiah. And the apostles do the same thing. When they do miracles, um, just like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, he's providing, it's almost like he's showing his badge. He's showing them evidence that he is an inspired apostle evidence of his God-given authority. And some people might not like the term evidence here. Like Jesus doesn't need to show evidence. And well, sure, he doesn't need to, but he chose to. That's undeniably what he's doing. He's giving evidence of who he is. Okay, so he's giving them something they can observe and that they can see that makes it obvious who he is. So when you think about the idea of faith in general, um, a lot of the time, I think we have this fallback position of thinking that faith is believing despite not having any evidence. Okay, so we, we think, well, I have faith because I can't really demonstrate that God exists or that I can't really truly know, so I just have faith, even though I don't have enough evidence. Faith is actually the opposite of that. So what faith is, is believing the evidence that's been revealed to you. Frank Torek, and I believe it was Norman Geisler, actually wrote a book called, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And that's true. The atheist has to function off of faith, just like the Christian has to function off of faith. The difference is the atheist has to function off of blind faith, where we can function off the faith that's been revealed to us, uh, or the evidence that's been revealed to us, rather. And I think I mentioned this last week, but when you talk about modern science today, it is built on Christian scientists, not Christian scientists as in Christian science, like the weird Scientology type thing. Christian science is in science done by Christians. So when you look at Isaac Newton, he was able to look at the universe and see that because there's a creator, because there's a mind behind the universe, he can see patterns, he can see uniformity, and so he can, he can use that as his starting point in order to do science. And that's how we got so many of the incredible discoveries that we, that we build off of today, by understanding that God existed. It wasn't a coincidence that they were Christian. Okay, people like to say, well, everyone was Christian back then. Um, back in, you know, the, the 15, 16, 17, 1800s, everybody was Christian, of course. Well, first of all, that isn't true. China wasn't Christian. Okay, it, not everybody was Christian. Number two, that's aside from the point. Because the point isn't these guys were scientists and happened to be Christian. It was they were scientists and relied on their Christian faith in order to do science. So faith isn't believing in spite of the evidence, okay? It's believing based on the evidence that's been revealed to you. Now, I think a really good way and helpful way to define faith biblically and simply is that faith is believing God, okay? So in order to have faith, of course, 
you have to believe in God, uh, but to have faith is more than just to believe in God. It's believing God. In other words, believing God's promises. In other words, other words, it's believing what God has revealed to you. So that is what faith is. It's not believing even though God hasn't revealed anything. It's believing based on what God has revealed. Um, And of course, you can look at, we're not going to do a whole lot of time on this, but when you look at the, the two categories of special revelation and general revelation, God has revealed himself in different ways in both of those scenarios. Special revelation being scripture specifically, and that he has revealed so much detail about who he is in scripture, including the idea that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. Um, and on the other hand, he has revealed so much to us in regard to natural revelation. In fact, he's he's revealed so much in natural or general revelation, in other words, creation. Okay, he's revealed so much that in Romans 1, we're told that there is no excuse for not believing in God. Okay, so that's how much he has revealed to us. We have more than enough evidence. And this is why C.S. Lewis had said, if you choose not to believe, it's not based on a lack of evidence. That's for certain. Um, and, And one of my favorite quotes of his is that, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the rising sun, not just because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So God provides evidence, both in the form of special revelation and general revelation. Um, but all that to say, evidence is very important. And we have this idea that sometimes we have this idea, some people do at least, that we're not supposed to be looking at evidence in regard to God. We're supposed to just kind of assume that he's true. Um, but there's no way around it. We, we are responding to God based on the evidence that he has given to us. His existence, or to be technically accurate, his essence is obvious to the eye or to the mind, um, in this case, to both. Now, I wanted to pull up an interesting article. This is actually, uh, I don't even know how I found this, but it's its uh, its about a, a paralegal. Um, it's called 20 Types of Evidence You May Encounter as a Paralegal. So, Notice, 20 types of evidence. It's going through all these different ways that they view evidence in the court system um, as paralegals or as, and, and as lawyers. Um, so let's just look at a few of these because I wanted you to think about this idea of evidence and how many different ways it can sort of present itself, A, but B, how many different ways we can interpret evidence. So when you go back to that idea of getting off of the concept of proof, Okay, get off, or, or prove, get off of the idea of can I prove God exists and get onto the idea of evidence slash God is the best explanation for everything, for um, the universe, for humanity, for consciousness, for the mind, for uh, the supernatural realm, which exists outside of our realm. So let's look at all of these different ways. Well, I'll just, I'll read a handful of them just so you can see though, because I want you to think about how many different ways evidence can be interpreted. So there's 20, but we're not going to read them all. First one, direct evidence. Generally speaking, there are two primary types of evidence, direct and circumstantial. Direct evidence, as its name implies, is evidence that directly links a defendant to the crime for which they're on trial without any need for inference. A common example would be the sworn testimony of an eyewitness. So Bible has plenty of those, right? (laughs) Eyewitness testimonies. Um, 
But this is direct evidence. So you have this idea of direct evidence. And then you have this idea next of circumstantial evidence. It says, on the other hand, circumstantial evidence is evidence that implies a person committed a crime. So it implies it. They don't necessarily have this um, solid eyewitness testimony or sworn eyewitness testimony. It says, for example... While direct evidence might include a witness directly seeing a defendant commit a crime, circumstantial evidence could be uh, witnesses seeing a defendant fleeing a crime scene. So in this case, they didn't actually see them. The witness didn't see them commit a crime, but they might have seen them drive away after the crime. And they kind of put two and two together and say, well, this is what makes the most sense. Now, that person could just happen to be fleeing the crime, but if there's enough evidence to show that them leaving right after the crime along with this, this, and this factor tells us that the best explanation is that they did it, well, then they're going to be found guilty. Remember, even in court, that word prove doesn't always work. You still have to demonstrate beyond um, beyond a reasonable doubt. So if there's a reasonable doubt, it's not going to work. It has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, you have physical evidence. You have individual physical evidence listed. So that could be physical, could be uh, a weapon. It says a shoe print, tire marks, things like that. Um, or maybe a piece of clothing or something where individual physical evidence would be like DNA. You find DNA at a crime scene. Well, can, be, can DNA be faked or planted? Yes. Can items, shoes, tire marks, weapon, clothing, can those be planted? Yes. So again, you have to be careful with this word prove. What you're doing is you're looking at the situation and, and figuring out the best explanation beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, you have forensic evidence. This again is, it says things like DNA matching, fingerprint identification, hair evidence, fiber evidence. Um, you have digital evidence. This could be things found in like cell phones, hard drives, computers, uh, documentary evidence, demonstrative evidence i'm just yeah there's anyway i don't want to keep listing these off because i'm going to get bored but the point is that there are so many different ways to interpret evidence evidence is obvious to the mind or the eye so now that you're on that idea of evidence and you're answering the idea of um whether or not god exists or god is being or essence if god is okay you could c correctly say god is i'll say exist for the rest of the episode just because i know we we don't use it technically most of the time um so when you're answering the question can you prove god exists and now the question is is god's existence the best explanation now you can move on to a asking them questions okay so you can you can always ask them questions back and forth and that's the best way to do things and B, you can move on to presenting positive evidence for God's existence. Now, what I would encourage you to do, well, I guess I'm going to tell you them in this episode, but otherwise what I would encourage you to do is go and research evidence for the existence of God. It is so convenient to have three, four, or five of these just kind of simplified in your head, always ready because you never know when you're going to use them, which is a command, by the way, always be ready to, to defend the faith um, and to do so gently and respectfully. So I would encourage you to research existence for God's arguments. Um, there are a ton of good ones. I'd, I would suggest watching Frank Torek and William Lane Craig, especially with the more um, scientific and philosophical kind of things. Um, John Lennox is another one. They just have incredible arguments. They lay them out very clearly. But I would have a handful ready just in your mind so that you understand them simply. Um, and I'll show you the three that I probably 
um, would think are the most helpful and they're good for both if you're kind of new to this or if you're seasoned in this and you've been a believer for a long time, these will be helpful either way. So first of all, I would go with the what's called the Kalam cosmological argument. And the Kalam cosmological argument says, A, anything that began to exist has a cause. B, the universe began to exist. C, therefore, the universe has a cause. Okay, so this one is um, in regard to the creation of the universe. So again, A, anything that began to exist has a cause. B, the universe began to exist. C, therefore, the universe has a cause. So the question is, what is the cause? But notice the, um, the way it's laid out. It's that anything that began to exist has a cause. You can't just say anything that exists or technically you can, but using the term generally, you can't just say anything that exists uh, has a cause because then you have to backtrack your way out and say, oh no, except for God. Um, You have to say anything that began to exist has a cause. Because remember, if something began to exist, then that thing is becoming. Or in other words, that thing is created. So the universe began to exist. Now, there are a lot of believers who... um, uh, they they don't like the idea of what's referred to as the Big Bang Theory, um, and that's fine, uh, but I actually think in a lot of ways it's it's great because Christianity has been telling people for thousands of years that the universe had a beginning. It's in the very beginning of Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the universe had a starting point, and this is significant But be, because before 100 years ago, before 1929, Scientists generally believe that the that the universe was eternal. Um, they believe that it just always existed. In this change in 1929, uh, with the Hubble telescope, when they discovered this idea of redshift, and that idea, I don't, I've probably explained this on an episode before, but it's like if you imagine a balloon, right? So take a balloon, a small balloon, and draw like dots all over it with a permanent marker. As you blow that balloon up, everything's expanding but they're expanding apart from each other. And so what this told scientists, physicists, is that the universe is expanding and it's it's expanding in all directions. And so this tells them that it started at a certain starting point and expanded in all directions. Now, in my opinion, I think this is completely compatible with scripture. Um, I don't think this contradicts anything. I think that uh, however God wanted to create the universe when he said, let there be light, when he brought things into being, he could have done it however he wants. It makes perfect sense that it could have started at one point and spread out. But the point is, from 1929 onward, it is vastly recognized that the universe had a beginning. The universe began to exist. It isn't eternal. So if the universe began to exist, now you have to understand and explain how it came into existence if you're going to try to do genuine science. So how did the universe begin to exist? Remember, anything that began to exist has to have a cause. So what is the cause of the existence of the universe? Well, you can't just say quantum fluctuation because then you have to explain where this whole sea of energy came from. The existence of the universe would have to be something that is timeless, something that is spaceless, something that is not created of matter, not created at all, because we're talking about 
anything inside of the realm of the universe being created. Uh, it has to be something personal because it has to be able to explain how we're created. Uh, so all of these things have to be explained. And God is the best explanation for a being who is uh, personal, who is timeless, who is spaceless, who is not composed of or limited to matter. God is the best explanation for these things. And in fact, uh, there was a debate that William Lane Craig was engaged in. I forget who it was with. I uh, probably should have just went and looked. Uh, but the guy was kind of being sarcastic and, and they were talking about the creation of the universe. And the other guy was saying, well, I think it was a, a, a computer. And Dr. Craig said, well, it can't be a computer because a computer takes time to function. And he says, well, I think it was a very special computer. And, you know, they kept kind of going on with it. And he was doing this whole little bit. And then eventually it gets to the point where um, he says, oh, no, this, this, this is a special computer. It's not limited to time or space or anything like that. And finally, Dr. Craig had just said, well, what, what you're describing is actually God. You're just calling it a computer because you've robbed it of all the attributes that would make it a computer. Um, so you have to be able to explain what this cause is. And if somebody's going to explain this cause and pretty much describe God but call it something else, then that's just what they're doing. They're describing God, but they're calling him something else. Um, so that's the first argument is the Kalam cosmological argument. Let me summarize it one more time. A, anything that began to exist has a cause. That's common sense. B, the universe began to exist. C, therefore, the universe has a cause. A second argument that's really helpful, and this is for Christianity specifically, because uh, remember that last argument you might have noticed, um, until you really follow it through and start to get into the uh, the personal side of it, God being personal, that actually doesn't have to be explicitly used for Christianity. Um, that's a, a theism argument. It could be used for anything uh, in regard to theism, even deism, for the most part. Um, all that last argument says is that a God exists, a creator, an intelligent designer exists. And while that argument was made famous by Dr. William Lane Craig, he actually has a book on it he wrote, I believe, in the late 70s. Um, it was actually formulated, the argument was formulated by a Muslim scholasticist. Uh, so that just goes to show it can be used for any kind of theism. So that's not for Christianity in, specific, in, in particular, but it can be used to get people to Christianity. You can start there and then you can kind of go on. There's a lot of ways to do apologetics and arguments. Now, the second argument that I would say is, is another need-to-know argument. You need to know this argument. Um, this would be the minimal facts argument that was made famous by Gary Habermas. Uh, I've had him on the show twice. Um, Mike Lacona is another one. They actually wrote a book together called The Case for the Resurrection. They've both done a ton of work in the area of the resurrection. Uh, and, and actually, Gary Habermas just released another book that's like almost 2,000 pages on evidence alone after everything he's already done. So I just, I don't know where that guy gets the focus and the ability to just keep piling up more and more evidence, but it's awesome. So uh, check that out if you haven't. But what the minimal facts argument is, is exactly what it sounds like. It's an argument for the resurrection based on the minimal facts that most scholars agree on whether Christian or secular. So scholars who are not Christian believers, historians, um, they would agree on this set of facts that we'll go over in just a second here. Um, but this is called the minimal facts argument. And the way it came about is that when Dr. Gary Habermas was getting one of his degrees, 
Uh, I believe it was his dissertation, or maybe it was just a paper, I don't know. I want to say it was his dissertation, but he wanted to write it on the resurrection. And his professor said, okay, this is a, you know, we're a classically liberal school, you can you can write it on whatever you want, but if you're going to do it on the resurrection, you cannot say the resurrection's true because the Bible says it happened. You can't do that. And so he had to get creative. And this is where this idea came from that, he, you know, he kind of said, well, I'm what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at what other scholars say about the resurrection um, who aren't Christian believers. And so he compiled this list of minimal facts in regard to the resurrection that all scholars agree on, the majority of scholars agree on. And when he puts those all together, the most logical conclusion or the best explanation is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happened. So to list some of these, of course, you have to start with the idea that Jesus of Nazareth actually existed. And if you don't know this yet, I have a treat for you. Okay, there are pretty much no secular historians who would say that Jesus of Nazareth didn't exist and walk the earth. Okay, they'll say he didn't, he didn't do any miracles. They'll say he didn't raise from the dead. They'll say, um, well, I think this or this or this was modified somehow. They can say any of that. But almost every one of them agrees that Jesus of Nazareth actually existed and walked the earth. He was a real person. Okay, so you start there. That's, that's a given. Um, and, and some people don't know that, believers or atheists. Uh, some people don't know that it's, it's unanimous, unanimously agreed upon that Jesus of Nazareth existed. So, of course, you start there, and then you move on to the cross. So, not only did Jesus of Nazareth exist, but Jesus of Nazareth died by crucifixion. And not only by crucifixion, but crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. Um, so you have this idea that the vast, vast majority of scholars agree that Jesus was crucified. He died on a cross under Pontius Pilate. Uh, who would deny this? Well, Islam denies it. Guess where Islam's sources come from? 600 plus years later, that's where they come from. They don't need to be seriously taken in this regard in any way, shape, or form. There are so, so, so many sources from way before that. Uh, in fact, the book of John, the earliest fragment uh, that has been found from the book of John, may have been from within 25 years of when the book of John was written. And when you look at the manuscriptual evidence, I actually, oh my goodness, I have a lot of things to link in the description. We had Dan Wallace on last year. He is like a world-renowned expert. Um in the idea of textual criticism and, and manuscriptual evidence. He's just incredible. I'll link that in the description. Uh, but the, the, the evidence we have in regard to manuscripts is literally mind-blowing, and nothing compares to New Testament manuscripts. So you have all of these New Testament manuscripts. Um, you have writings outside of the Bible. You have mentions by people like Tacitus, like Josephus, like Ignatius, uh, like Clement of Rome, like Polycarp, who was a disciple to John, um, and Ignatius of Antioch actually specifically said that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate outside of scripture. Uh, you, I mean, you just have a list of them that goes on and on. Um, but the fact that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross under Pontius Pilate is agreed upon, not just by Christian scholars, but by secular scholars. So this is a minimal fact, right? It's a fact that even secular scholars, the majority would agree on. Another one, is that the tomb was empty. Okay, there's an empty tomb. Even in the Gospels, you have this idea recorded of Jewish authorities spreading um, a false rumor that Jesus' body was stolen by the apostles. And we're going to get to that one too. So you have an empty tomb. 
Jesus was crucified. He was put in a tomb. The tomb's empty. What happened? Okay, and these tombs were, remember, these tombs are not designed to be opened. When people are put into these things, it's not designed for them to come back out again. They're, they're, they've deceased, they've passed away, they're dead, they're in a tomb and it's shut. And in fact, when you think about the rolling rock uh, kind of door closure that they had on these tombs, some of you have probably been to the Holy Land, I haven't. Um, but when you look at these style tombs, they're designed so there's a slope, like it slopes downward to close off the door. Very, very heavy rocks. Um, I've read anywhere between one and two tons. So these are incredibly heavy stones. Uh, a, a handful of teenage guys who are terrified for their life could not move this thing, nor would they have had the motivation for it. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but these tombs existed. All of the tombs they've discovered, I think it's been like five or six or seven of them, archaeologists have discovered, all of them belong to wealthy members of the Jewish Sanhedrin or wealthy Jewish people. All of them. Okay, so Joseph of Arimathea, who gave Jesus his tomb, was both of those things. So pretty incredible archaeology there. But the point is that the uh, the tomb was empty, and that's agreed upon by the majority of scholars. And if you're wondering, the tomb is still empty. So just like with the Kalam cosmological argument, in the universe beginning to exist and having to have a cause, you have to explain that cause. Well, it's the same situation here. Jesus was in the tomb. The tomb was found empty. Now you have to explain why the tomb is empty. And at that point, that's again when we come back to this idea of the best explanation. Now, if you have a worldview where you, you've you decided no matter what, I'm not going to believe in miracles. I'm going to refuse miracles exist. Well, then, of course, you're going to try to turn to any other view uh, in order to try to try to figure out what happened and, and come, up the, come up with an explanation that's not the natural explanation, that's not the most common explanation in regard to the evidence that we have. Um, so some of those theories, there's no good ones. One of them is like the twin theory that Jesus had a twin. Well, if Jesus had a twin, why didn't his mom know? Didn't she give birth to him? Why didn't Joseph know? Why didn't his siblings know? James and Jude, for example, his half-brothers, and he had more. Why didn't any of them know? I mean, this can be dispelled so easily just by those those reasons alone. Mary not knowing and James, his half-brother not knowing. Okay, his James, and that's another another one of the minimal facts um, that has to be dealt with in, in Dr. Gary Habermas's argument, is that James, the half-brother of Jesus, half because he's not God, um, but, but James being the half-brother of Jesus, he doubted that Jesus was God. He didn't believe that he was who he said he was until after the resurrection. And then what happened? James went from being a skeptic to leading the church in Jerusalem. In Acts 15, he wrote one of the books of scripture in the New Testament, the book of James. So you have James transforming his life and all of a sudden believing, but that discounts the, uh, that discounts the twin theory completely. And then you have other theories like uh, when Jesus leaves the tomb and in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 people see him alive at one time. And this could be 500 men in addition to women and children. It's not exactly clear, but that's usually uh, generally how they counted. Well, again, you get these theories that are not the best explanation based on any kind of evidence we have. And one of those theories is a hallucination theory. Well, they all hallucinated. They had a mass hallucination at the same time. Really? Where else has that happened? Oh, nowhere? Okay. Well, (laughs) maybe it's not a very good theory then. So this idea of a hallucination theory that they all hallucinated and didn't really see Jesus, well, 
This, again, is not a theory based on the best explanation in regard to the evidence. What this is based on is a conspiracy theory saying, well, I don't believe in miracles, therefore, I'm not going to make my decision based on the evidence. I'm going to insert something in spite of the evidence because I believe the evidence points to a miracle and I don't believe in a miracle. That's what that's based off of. It's not good history um, and historians don't do that for anything else. In fact, when you look at uh, people who will sometimes complain about how much later the gospels were written than the cross and the resurrection. Okay, so if you put the cross and the resurrection around 30 AD, uh, the gospels were written 60, 70, 80, 90 years later. John was probably written around 90. Uh, so Matthew, the earliest dates for Matthew would be in the 60s or 70s. Uh, or, or I'm sorry, Mark, because Mark is most commonly said to be the earliest one. Um, but this is actually incredibly close to the event in regard to history. And so A, not only would the apostles have been telling these stories about Jesus over and over and over and over again, as Mike Lacona says, um, until they had written them down on the gospels before they died, but that's also not a lot of time to pass from 30 to 60 or 70 AD, let's say 30, 40, even 50 years. That is not a lot of time. When you look at writings from, uh, from Plutarch, okay, he lived around the time of Jesus and he wrote about people from several hundred years earlier, two or 300 years earlier. And still that's considered good history, reliable history. So historians don't take this approach elsewhere. It's biased if you're going to say uh, that I don't trust the gospels because they're too far apart. They wouldn't do that with other history, and they don't do that. Anything you know, for the most part, about Roman history was written much, much later than when it actually happened. And in addition to that, uh, Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona, I think, disagree on this. But there are a lot of scholars who also think that the creed that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 15, toward the beginning of it, in that first paragraph, um, about handing them what what has been passed down to him, that Jesus... um, rose from the dead according to the scriptures in three days. He, he cites that little creed. Well, there a lot, of, a lot of scholars think that that came from within even a year or two of the crucifixion and resurrection. Um, now, I think Mike Lacona differs on that. He probably thinks it was in within 10 years or so. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but a lot of scholars will say that that could have been within one, two, three years of the event actually happening. Um, but whether or not that's the case, it's it's very close either way, especially by historical standards. So that argument just doesn't hold much water. It's it's incredibly, the Gospels are incredibly close to the source, especially considering the guys who witnessed it are the guys uh, who are writing this down. Now, Dr. Habermas actually lists a couple more arguments, like the apostles all going from being afraid and hiding um, to all giving their lives, not for just what they believed, but for what they actually saw and witnessed. Um, so he gives a couple more minimal facts here, but you get the point. It's it's compromised of the minimal facts that scholars agree on, Christian or non-Christian. Um, so that's a very crucial argument. And the reason I give you that one is because the resurrection is a great place to start when talking about Christianity and trying to demonstrate it to somebody. If the resurrection is true, then Jesus is exactly who he said he was. If he had the power to raise himself from the dead, then he's God. And so when you can, I would suggest trying to start with the resurrection, because if the resurrection is true, then everything else is true. 
Uh, so I, I would try to have at least a few of those ready. Maybe have like the the cross, the empty tomb, and either the apostles or James or Paul, uh, something along those lines that you can have ready to talk about in regard to the resurrection. And sometimes it sounds intimidating to have a discussion like that, but what I've found is once you just do it, you'll probably want to do it more and more. Uh, once you finally go and do it, I think you'll see it's not as, as terrifying and as scary as you think. And especially, you never know uh, who God has put in your path to hear the right thing at the right time. And they might they might turn and put their faith in him as a result um, of what God used you for in that discussion. You never know when somebody just needs to hear the right thing. I mean, think about who shared the gospel with you. What if you had never heard it? What if your parents or your friends or your pastor, whoever it might have been, what if they never shared the gospel with you and you didn't know Christ? It took somebody actually doing it. Okay, faith comes from hearing. It doesn't come from nowhere. So while this episode is practical um, and, of course, helpful, I think the number one thing I hope it does is give you some confidence. And those are just two arguments that are very common and they're very, very good arguments. So I would use those. But go research your own arguments. Find more arguments for the existence of God. Be creative, okay? Um, And maybe some things will stand out to you more than other things and use those. Use what you're most comfortable with. But, uh, you know, we're called to be prepared to defend the faith. And and it's just like going to the gym. It's something you have to do over and over and over. You don't just go to the gym once and then you're ready to go. Well, it's the same thing with being prepared. Being prepared takes preparing all the time. So we should constantly be thinking about how we can prepare. Uh, But otherwise, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Any questions you have, send them to information at apologetics.org. That's information at apologetics.org. I hope you have a blessed week, and we'll see you back here for the Christmas series. It'll either be starting next Monday or the following Monday. But either way, see you back here Monday night at 6 p.m., and I hope you have a blessed week.